This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Xander Keeg is an award-winning clinical social worker and a female-to-male transsexual of Mexican heritage. His advocacy work involves serving as Welcome Ministry Board President, Transgender American Veterans Association Board Director of the Community and Fellowship Committee, Advisory Board Member, and Senior Fellow for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Xander is the co-founder of the LGBTQ Caregiver Center and serves on the National Alliance of Caregiving Mental Health Advisory Committee, the RISE National Advisory Board, and the Better Living for Seniors Special LGBT Committee. In this episode, I, Aaron Kimberly, discuss with Xander some of the similarities and contrasting experiences of gender nonconformity and gender dysphoria. And here's my conversation with Xander. Hello. Hey, Xander, how's it going? It's going really well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Moving on, moving ahead. Good. Good. Wow. Thanks for taking this time to to chat with me. Of course. I enjoy chatting with you. Um, One of the, I think I mentioned in the email um, when I first pitched this idea to you, I thought it would be fascinating because our stories have, have similarities. I mean, A, we're, we both say we're transsexuals. We're both biologically female. You know, we both lived a part of our adult lives as, as lesbians. Um, But where our stories don't converge is that I had an experience that I would label gender dysphoria and, and you have said that, that you haven't experienced that. So I would, I would really love to just, compare stories a little bit and try to flesh out, well, what does that mean about what is gender dysphoria? And, um, you know, because there's, there's aspects of your story that I think may have been protective factors. And so I would love to just kind of explore Mm -hmm. what it was about me and and maybe my environment and uh, compared to you and your environment and, you know, what may have led to gender dysphoria in some individuals and not others. Well, it's what's part. What's interesting too is that when I first started my medical transition, it wasn't gender dysphoria, wasn't the diagnosis. It was gender identity disorder. Yeah, and I remember at that time thinking, "I'm not disordered. I I don't want to be labeled with a disorder." Like I didn't like it, so I was very hesitant or reluctant or you know, um, just very opposed to this idea of being labeled with a disorder. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't, it was a few years later that the DSM changed to gender dysphoria. And, you know, what I did to prepare for this, you know, what I did is I went back to the DSM-4 and I looked to see, do I fit the criteria for gender identity disorder? Yes, I do. Do I fit the current for gender dysphoria. Yes, yes, I fit. But I don't, I just don't, um, I don't want to be labeled with a diagnosis. You know, when I was a kid, I was called hyperactive. They would call that attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD now. 
So, okay, yeah, I've got ADHD, but so what? Yeah. Right? It doesn't limit me. I meet people now who are like, I have ADHD, like they're telling somebody, you know, they have some chronic, debilitating, you know, disability. And it's like, it's just ADHD. Like, I don't understand, right? So it, it might also be partly, in addition to protective factors, it could also be my my default temperament. I'm quite oppositional and countercultural. I always have been. So there, there's a sense in which, like, yeah, I might fit that criteria for that diagnosis, but you're not slapping that label on me. Sure. Right. But yeah, of course I, I do I do meet the criteria that it does match my experience. Okay. But I just don't want to be. I I, I wrote it down because I wanted to be able to tell you. It's like um I've said in the past I don't have gender dysphoria and I transition to escape homophobia and sexism. Um, but that's not the entirety of it, right? It's more like I figured I could do something pretty drastic that would alleviate some symptoms that I was having socially, right? Right. That I was experiencing in society. But if you really think about it, you know, again, it is drastic. It's drastic what we've done. <laughs> That's like right. We've completely changed. We've changed so much about ourselves, our bodies, our brains have been permanently changed. We're putting testosterone into our bodies. It's not as if I did it willy nilly for, you know, so I, I, in some ways I'm glad to be able to have this conversation because I don't, I don't want it left how I've left it. And partly I'm an external processor and I don't really think things through on my own. I've got other things to think about. So I'm not, I don't sit around thinking about my identity like a lot of people seem to be doing these days. And so it's only in dialogue like this that I can actually, um, to use a nine, 1990s phrase, unpack. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, let's let's back up then. Let's let's kind of yeah. ignore that, you know, in you, that you had me just thrown out a statement in the past that I didn't have gender dysphoria. So let's let's just kind of ignore that for a second because that's it's not the labels that are important to me either. Yeah. Uh, what I would like to understand is is your experience and how that may or may not have been different than mine because you did describe a childhood in which you felt free to just be yourself that it sounded like you know, you said mentioned you had drag queens in your life and you were a very gender nonconforming child. And, and in your environment, it sounds like that didn't cause you any distress. Well, maybe we should even step back a little bit further and establish like I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I was born in 1966, so I'm almost 57. So I'm Gen X and I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. And I think time and place factors into these things quite a bit um how how old are you and where did you grow up i'm 49 and i grew up in a small little farming community so it was a very okay. yeah. uh a town about the size of about three thousand people yeah. near, near a city was two hours away and and quite quite conservative and and not that there wasn't any diversity but there certainly wasn't a gay and lesbian community and drag queens yeah, yeah. so like I had more than 3,000 people in my high school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very different environments. Right. So, yeah. uh, but I think that matters, right? It matters that um, the environment in which we're growing up in 
matters quite a bit, right? If you're in a more rural area, I was I was suburban, I was coastal suburban. So I was I was raised in Torrance, which is a suburb in Los Angeles County that's very close to the uh, Pacific Coast. So that, you know, it's a very particular kind of environment. Um, and my family was Catholic, Mexican Catholic. And so there's people make a lot of assumptions about that. Oh, Catholics, Mexicans, a lot of this and a lot of that, whatever they say, machismo. And, and, and it's like, well, you know, we, if we want to get into those kinds of weeds, we can, but I, I didn't have the kind of um, experience but I could have. And what I mean by that is my grandmother on my father's side, so my paternal grandmother, she was not happy at all with my tomboyishness, not happy. And she made remarks periodically to me. And so did my aunts, but it was, it was very infrequent. But it turns out that they all were having, they were chewing off my dad's ear all the time about it. I was raised by my father as an only child from the age of eight. And so my mother was also not happy with my tomboyishness. She would often for Christmas and my birthday, she would buy me pink clothing, yellow clothing. She was constantly trying to reinforce femininity. And I just, you know, didn't want any part of it. And this is another factor that might be different between us also is that when I heard those messages from my grandmother, from my aunts and from my mother, my first thought was something like, well, I don't care what you want. I'm not going to do that. And I didn't internalize any sense of I'm doing something wrong. Those people don't love me. Um, I don't think I even cared if they loved me, <laughs> you know, like there was a sense in which I was just like, I'm a kid and you're the adult and you're supposed to do what you do and let me do what I do. I was, again, I was, I was labeled incorrigible as a child, which is oppositionally defiant now. So I was very much, I was a juvenile delinquent. So I was just not having it. I did not internalize. I didn't have any self-esteem issues, self-worth issues, nothing like that. How were you when you were hearing those messages? How did it impact you? I was definitely an internalizer, yeah. uh, you know, so prone prone to depression and anxiety and, and internalizing those messages that if, if, and it seemed to be, I don't really remember anyone saying and giving me permission to be a very boyish girl. Not that anyone, when I was really, really small, I don't remember when I was late later in life, I was definitely bullied. But when I was really small, I it's not that I remember anything especially awful happening. But there was, there was just a lot of of pressure. It's like, well, no, you should be wearing this. You should be playing with this. You should be doing this. Um, so just this constant messaging that there was something not right about me. I can remember times. You know, I wore some hand-me-down clothes, and they came from two of my male cousins. Um, and so they were OP and hang 10 shorts and shirts, you know, typical Southern California beach, beach wear. The other thing too, is, you know, growing up as a kid in the seventies here in the States, at least we had a very prominent messaging coming from the feminist movement and the popularity of, um, the free to be you and me sentiment. 
And we also had in one of our department stores, there was this line of clothing for children that was unisex. And so they would put it in between the girls section, and the boys section would be these racks of clothes called Garanimals. And you would go, do you remember, did you ever have Garanimals? I, I don't remember those. So, yeah, so because again, we're 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 a bit off in age, not not a lot, but enough. So you would go up to these racks, and one would have like pants, another one would have shirts. And I pull out a pair of pants, and it'd have a tag on it, like a hippopotamus or a a giraffe. And then you'd go find a shirt that had the same tag, and that's how you knew they went together. And they were a mismatch of colors, very earth tonish, like blues, oranges, browns, greens, right? So earth tone colors, and so. Boys and girls were wearing granimals. Uh, it was also the days of um, somewhat of a bowl cut kind of haircut for boys and girls or sort of mullet junior kind of yeah. haircuts. And so there was really this movement towards a unisex. I think they was it was being pushed in some ways in our culture at that time. And so I just fit right into that. I played soccer. My father you know, always took me to the beach. We were always running or cycling or skating, or I was skateboarding. So I was very much doing all of those activities and I wasn't getting bullied. You know, my bullying happened a little bit earlier. When I was six, I developed encephalitis um, after I was injected with the MMR vaccination, measles, mumps, rubella. And um, there was a bad batch. It was 1972, I believe. And there was a bunch of us in my hometown at the time of Mesa, Arizona. We all contracted encephalitis, you know, rubella from the vaccination. And some of us ended up in the hospital with encephalitis. And so that really did change a lot in my life from then on. But the bullying came once I went back to school because I talked a little bit differently. I was I was paralyzed on the whole left side of my body for two years. Wow. Um, and so I was walking differently, talking differently. I was behind in my studies. I, I entered school in the third grade. So I missed first and second grade. And, and so the bullying was because of that, but I was so, I was so angry at bullies that I became a bully and I bullied bullies. So the kids who were getting bullied, cause I grew up, I grew up, I got very tall and very strong and very fast. People couldn't outrun me. So I, was, I, I refer to myself, you remember that, that scene in Forrest Gump where he's running and the leg braces start popping off him yeah. and he's running, running, running. That was basically, I mean, I had leg braces. They didn't pop off, of course, but once I was out of them, I was one of the fastest girl runners in my middle school. So I was, or elementary school, I was quite fast. And so these kids would come to me and say, so-and-so is picking on me. And I'd say, oh, really? And then I'd go and like push them or punch them, right? Or or scare them. Usually I would just scare them. I wasn't too much into violence and, and less provoked. But that that was my limit on bullying. And that left people left me alone because of how big and strong and fast I was. So that was a sick. And I never had any bullying around being masculine or being a tomboy. Or there was a little bit of teasing because I I got I got my period. I started menstruating when I was 11. And so I started to develop. And I think I was also the first girl to have to wear a bra, you know, in sixth grade or seventh grade, you know, something like that. And so I got a little bit of teasing about that. But again, I didn't care. It, it didn't bother me at all. I thought these kids are stupid. That's what I thought, you know, <laughs> I thought they're, you know, the girls are just jealous because the boys like me more because I was actually quite boy crazy when I was that age. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I was. Yeah, it was. Uh, 
Yeah. So when you, when you describe yourself as a tomboy as a child, like what describe yourself? I mean, obviously, yeah. sort of like into the you know sports and roughhousing and stuff. But how else would you describe your gender nonconformity? Well, let's see. So I was wearing very boyish clothes, um, and when I was when I was wearing when I was wearing clothes like that maybe my grandmother or my mother gave me, I have these wonderful photographs of me where I'm wearing obviously very girly clothes, right? Even my shoes were really girly, but in the picture, my stance is my legs are spread really far apart and my hands are on my hips, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I'm standing next to, in a lot of these pictures, I'm standing next to the little boy who used to live next door to me. His name was uh, Rafael or Rafi, we called him. And he was in like little Speedos and and cowboy boots. Like we were just, you know, <laughs> we were just an odd little pair. Um, but so I'd say a lot of it had to do with, um, if you just saw pictures of me, you'd be like, I was kind of posing but I wasn't posing purposefully, but my my pose would be considered probably more masculine, right? Like girls don't tend to stand with their legs really wide apart, like exaggerated almost in this one picture of me. Um, there's a picture of me where I'm standing next to my grandmother and I'm wearing a little dress with like a lion on it. And I've got little buckle shoes and I've got, you know, my hair was really curly. I had very curly hair. And I'm standing there, I've got this scowl on my face and my fists are clenched, you know? <laughs> because you had to wear the dress. Yeah, I was just so yeah. angry, so angry. Yeah. And I didn't like my grandmother. Um, so it's just like a bad combination. So I'd say the way I dressed, the way I stood and the way I sat, you know, I would sit where I would cross my legs over, ankle on the knee, not, you know, um, not inner knee over the ankle, you know, inner knee, you know, to, knee to, over knee, so yeah. to speak. To what yeah. degree do you think that was intentional? Like, do you, were, were you intentionally looking at boys and men and then trying to? No, no, no. It was just comfortable. Um, I rode bicycles that had bars, right? Because girls' bikes don't have the bar, so I always had a boys' bike. Um, would that have been your choice if you had been given the choice of do you want that bike or that bike? Would you have absolutely? You yeah. would have chosen I, the, the boy bike. Yeah, you yeah. know, I did choose it. Yeah. Yeah. My dad took me to the store and I picked it out. It was this perfect, it was this awesome, like like mustard colored bike with a big old handlebars, like a like a like, like an old motorcycle and a big banana seat. <laughs> it was great. I had another bicycle that looked like a motorcycle my mom bought for me. Um, I was really big into riding like, uh, remember big wheels? Did you ever have a big wheel? Yep. I used to ride those and like skid out in the middle of the road. I was the only girl in my neighborhood that was doing these things. Um, what else? Well, I was smoking pretty young. I was nine years old when I started smoking cigarettes and it was with the boys. I didn't know any girls that were smoking at that young of an age. I was also drinking beer. Again, I was oppositional and turned into a little delinquent, but so it's also hard for me in some cases to separate out what was tomboyishness and what was also just the, um, what would you say, like, um, I guess the defiance part of me. I Because I knew that it upset people. And I think to a certain degree, I got pleasure out of knowing that it upset them. 
I, I didn't pull it out. I should have. Um, but I, I remember when I was 14 years old, I wrote a I wrote poetry for about a decade. I have almost 600 poems. I was quite, um, you know, busy with poetry writing. And one of my poems when I was 14 years old, the title of it is Though Society Doesn't Accept It. And it was my little anthem to myself of I don't care what society accepts. I like girls. Right. That that this is when I discovered that I that I not yeah that i not that i liked them but that i could be with them that was more than <laughs> i grew to like them but at first it was i could just i wasn't around boys i went to a juvenile delinquent school or a group home it was all girls when i was 14 what and was so that like there were no boys around yeah um part of it was fun you know cuz i was away from home and we were in the mountains in uh, San Diego County, there's a cool little mountain town called Ramona. It's really beautiful with horses, and it was nice. I, I liked that part of it. It was like being at camp all the time, but it was very restrictive. I didn't like that part of it, so I ran away a lot. And at the time, I held the record for the longest time of being punished for running away. I ran away so much um, or so often. I had a girlfriend while I was there. That was my first experience of having a girlfriend. And it's just like boys weren't around. And so I was a little sad that there weren't boys around. And one of the older girls said to me, well, you could have a girlfriend. And I was like, a girlfriend? She's like, yeah. She's like, I have a girlfriend. I'm like, you do? A girlfriend? She's like, yeah. And she, when she was still underage, so I don't want to make this sound as terrible as it could sound. I was 14. She was maybe 17. Because once you turned 18, you were out of there. And uh, I said, I don't know if I like girls. And she said, well, come over here and kiss me. And then you'll know. And then when we afterwards, I was like, well, that wasn't so bad. She's like, OK, we'll go get a girlfriend now. So like that was my initiation <laughs> into the <laughs> lesbian world. And I think it was, you know, have you ever heard of that saying lug lesbian until graduation? Yeah. I think there were some people that were like lesbian until like aging out you know, <laughs> of the group home the juvenile delinquent group home for girls um so i think some people for them it was very situational it just happened to be not for me it, it stuck right. yeah but i again this is something that with my family we're very large mexican catholic family we would always meet in parks when we got together and so when i was out of this group home for girls and i was back in school and I had girlfriends in high school, I would bring them to my family functions on holidays. Now, I never held their hand when I was with my family. I didn't introduce them as my lover, which was, you know, the terminology of the day, or even girlfriend. I never did that. I thought that'd be disrespectful. But I did bring them. And my family caught on after, uh, after a few years. But nobody ever said anything to me, except one time my Aunt Mary said to me, oh, you're like the other members of the family who just won't get married. Mm. Right? This is before yeah. you could get married. And so I was sort of like, which other members of the family? <laughs> they weren't in my specific family within the smaller, but my one aunt who was married to my my father's brother, she had a gay a gay brother and a one of her sisters had um a lesbian daughter. One of her other brothers had a gay son. And I was like, oh, it must be in the water in that family, you know, because there weren't any in my 
direct line. But okay. in her line, there were a bunch. So I would see them at family functions all the time. And as soon as I knew that they were part of the part of family, so to speak, right, the extended family in that way, I was like, oh, well, my family's cool then, you know, and ne no, nobody ever said anything okay. about it. Yeah. So how, it how was your big family? I'm just curious. Um, I've, I do have some on my mom's side of the family. I have a gay cousin and, but she also, my, on my mom's side of the family has, um, had an aunt that had, um, an intersex condition or, you know, disorder of sex development. And I've been trying to find out which, um, condition it is. Cause as you know, there's, there's many intersex conditions. There isn't a single one. So I'm trying to figure out and I mean a lot of those records are closed because she she's long passed but um not she hasn't didn't pass so long ago that those records are public in, public information and my mom has no idea which condition it is so I'm trying to trace that if if possible just to see if it's the same condition that I had um because it seems to sort of run in her side of the family you know it's one of the things that I, I believe I read it in your story that you just recently made public and oh, heart-wrenching, really. Jeez, Louise, Aaron. Um, I was thinking about when I was maybe 15, my mother took me to the doctor to have my hormones level, my hormone levels checked. I think that's what she called it, but it might have been a chromosome check. Um, because I remember the doctor saying to me, you have more testosterone than the average or the usual something kind of language. I don't remember the exact language, but he basically said, you have more testosterone than girls your age. And then he said something along the lines of, you know, you may find that you're attracted to women. And I was like, oh, I have a girlfriend. He's like, well, there you go. You know? <laughs> But she was that worried about me that she sent me, she took me to the doctor to have some okay. tests done. Okay. It's funny because my, when not so much, well, yeah, I guess it was because of my gender nonconformity. But then as, um, you know, I was an early teenager and starting to have crushes on girls. And, and that's the point that my parents took me to the family doctor as well to, to diagnose me and see if I was actually gay or not. See, my mom is, my mom is how I, came to be around drag queens. My mother was married eight times. And in between her marriages, from time to time, she had girlfriends. So I believe my mother, if you'd had to classify her, she was bisexual, right? But she never referred to herself that way. And so I saw her, eventually I saw her having girlfriends and I saw her with a lot of gay men around all the time. And then she started to produce drag shows and so there were constant, whenever I would go to visit her, right, I was living in LA, she was in San Diego, when I'd go to visit her, um, I never went to her drag shows because I wasn't of age to go into the, the place, because this was when drag shows were for 21 and older, Yeah, <laughs> because it's very, it's very adult entertainment, Yeah, um, that, you know, I never did see a show, but they would get ready in her house, and so I'd, I'd be there watching them while they were getting ready. Okay. And they were all gay men doing drag. They weren't, or female impersonation. Um, it's It seems different now with some of the, it's more like maybe trans women or something along those lines that are that are doing 
they're calling it drag, but it looks more like burlesque to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the the drag queens were 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 all were all gay men, but I guess some trans women have come through drag culture, so they they started you know as gay men and then became trans women, sort of like us from lesbian to trans men. But yeah. we know that there are like straight men who become trans women, and there are straight women who become or trans trans men. Uh, have you have you I've met several actually who were never part of lesbian community and still yeah. transitioned. Yeah. No, so. Yeah. And that, that seems more common these days than it was. Yes. I think 20 so. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's interesting to think that my mother thought maybe. You know, maybe she thought I had something, quote, wrong. You know what I mean? So your um, gender nonconformity was obvious enough that people around you, it, it was oh, obvious yeah. to them and, and had concerned yeah. your mom enough to take you to a doctor. But what's interesting is if you see pictures of me as a kid, I was, you know, I was rough and tumble. I was playing sports. I was wearing very boyish clothes, but I always had really long hair, right? I had beautiful hair. I miss my hair. <laughs> I, I had hair that was like, um, at one point it was like right, right to like the the end of my back. It, and it was jet black hair, very wavy hair. So I always had long hair. I didn't have short hair until I didn't even have short hair in the military because you don't need to have when you were female you didn't have to get your head shaved like the men you just had to make it so that it was tucked under the hat the cap so I didn't actually get a haircut that was short until I was oh my gosh um maybe in my mid mid to late 20s I always had really long hair I loved having really long hair but I would sometimes do that like bandana thing you know that yeah you know, um, yeah. so I was kind of butchy. So, to, I, you know, when people would say to me in the lesbian community, they'd say to me, um, are you butcher femme? And I'd say, I'm neither. I'm sporty. I made up a name for myself because uh, I didn't want to be butcher femme. All right. As you yeah. can see, like, I just I'm oppositional in all. <laughs> Do you think you would have fit? I mean, you were obviously gender nonconforming, but that it doesn't sound like that caused you distressed as a kid. So do you think no. you would have met the childhood gender dysphoria diagnosis back then? I, you know, since I've never worked with kids, I've never actually looked at what the criteria is for childhood gender identity disorder, right? If I, um, I, like, I did, don't did, really did, know. Did you feel like this burning desire as a kid, like I want to be a boy? No, 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 I, I was perfectly happy just being a little tomboy. Um, and people have speculated that it might be because I never got any pushback. Because even as a tomboy, I mean, even when I was in, in middle school, I was still very tomboyish. And in high school, I was still very tomboyish. But, you know, I... I, I, again, I was sort of in that middle place. I was a bit androgynous. Um, and so I didn't wear overtly feminine clothing, but I didn't wear overtly masculine clothing at that point in time. I was, I was wearing, uh, you know, Levi 501s, Hawaiian shirts and Vans tennis shoes, you know, very, you know, um, that was my uniform. I had like 10 pairs of each thing, you know, and I just rotated them. And, but even still, you know, there were boys who were always flirting with me and coming on to me. So there was something about like, I wasn't so masculine, 
that it was a turnoff to them, but I wasn't interested in them. But I noticed, I mean, I, I noticed, and you know, they weren't so shy about it. Um, but it it probably wasn't until I was in my 30s that I hit like peak masculinity. And that was because my my hair was much shorter. And then I was wearing things like flannels and, you know, Doc Martens. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the yeah. other uniform. <laughs> yeah, we, we probably shopped at the same places. <laughs> and then so, that was, but even still, I was always really astonished when men would come up to me in a flirtatious way. I'd be like, are you kidding? Like, look at me. <laughs> what, what signal are you getting here, buddy? You know? So a couple of things that you mentioned that, that I want to kind of go back and pick up on. So one is that you, it was confirmed you had high testosterone. And that seems to be pretty common amongst at least the FTMs that I knew 20 years ago. I mean, as, as you have rightly identified, I mean, something has shifted in the trans population in more recent years where a lot of heterosexuals are transitioning, but that hadn't been the case couple of decades ago so much. So a lot of what I'm saying here refers kind of to what maybe like the old school transsexuals. Yeah. And, um, but I, I, it seemed like almost every trans man back then that I had ever talked to said they had some kind of gynecological problem or a hormone imbalance where they had high testosterone. And that, I mean, that was the case for me because of my DSD, but there's lots of reasons why someone can have high testosterone. And that seems to correlate pretty strongly with um, at least the, the lesbian FDMs. Yeah, I've heard the same thing too. I've often heard it um, associated with PCOS. Yeah. Um, and I, I did not have that. Was it ever discovered why you had high testosterone? No. 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 Yeah, it's it's an interesting, right? It, it's an interesting question because what what... What does that, right? Like what increases testosterone? I would imagine it's like, did I just get a flush of it sort of accidentally in, in you know, in the womb or, right? Because I've, you know, I've had, I've had a full, you know, um, what do they call that? The uh, bilateral salampingo oophorectomy hysterectomy, right? So all, and and when they took all that stuff out, they didn't say to me, Oh, you had an ovotestes or something, mm -hmm. right? So it wasn't as if I was, I had an organ inside, a gland inside that was producing high levels of testosterone. So I don't, I don't know where it came from mm -hmm. and I don't know at what point that was true. Yeah. A lot of, because most of my early childhood is, is not accessible to me memory wise because of the encephalitis, right? That happened when I was six. It was around eight when I sort of, settled down and got back to living my life in a new normal. And so my memories um, before age eight are just completely gone. Yeah. There's, and there's, the, we haven't been researched as much as the trans women either. There aren't as many studies on, on FDMs and gender dysphoria in the lesbian population, but um, I don't know if you're familiar um, with Blanchard's research into the birth order effect for gay men. Is that a line of research that you're familiar with? Not the research, but I have heard about that phenomenon, but I, I, I don't, I haven't committed it to memory. So his hypothesis that, and there's been multiple studies. Um, so the hypothesis is that 
the more males that a woman has that her immune system starts to break down a protein that's related to um, the sex differentiation process in a male fetus. And that the net result is a hypotestosterone environment that that fetus is, is mm. developing in. Um, and so the hypothesis is that, that then correlates, that accounts for about 30% of gay men, but it tends to correlate most strongly with the very hyper-feminine uh, gay men that, and like the HSTS, the homosexual transsexual population. So it, it it's, um, yeah, so the hypothesis is that this hypotestosterone environment not only counts for homosexuality, but also a very um, extreme gender nonconformity. Hmm. So, I mean, that seems to map onto the, the, the lesbian experience as well, that maybe a hyper testosterone environment hmm. contributes to greater gender nonconformity in lesbians. Well, I, I do remember hearing something about there was a particular medication that was prescribed to women in the 60s, perhaps. I'm not sure if it was for morning sickness, something something that they were being prescribed and they're I've heard people say that there's a, a higher number of trans women who were exposed to that in the womb because their mothers took it. Like, like of all the women who took it and all the babies who were exposed to it, there's like a higher number of now trans women who, who came through that experience. I haven't heard again because they haven't done the research on how that affects us. My mother had one child before me, my, my older sister, and with her father, and then I'm the only child from my father. But in between, I do believe my mother had um, several miscarriages. And she also had issues with drugs and alcohol. And... I don't know exactly if this is accurate because it's hard to tell because I've gotten stories from my mom and my dad. But my understanding is that either when I was born, which was two months premature, by the way, um, my mother was either in or had just been in a psychiatric facility. And um, I believe she had um, well, what they used to call manic depressed, right? So bipolar. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, the, the drugs and the alcohol, right? Like how do those affect, you know, the, the baby and, um, you know, they, they actually thought I was dead. They, they listened for a heartbeat, you know, when my mom went for a prenatal, they listened to the heart and I had no heartbeat that they could find that they could discover. So they actually were, were, they prepared my mother to basically take me out. At seven months, um, they figured I was I was deceased, you know, in the womb, and um, but they did one last check. Um, this is my understanding of it. They did like one last check to see if they could hear something, and there was like a very faint heartbeat, and so okay. they took me out and put me yeah. in an incubator for a couple of months. Wow, which back then was a little scary, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot really of babies scary. ended up with blindness or partial blindness. So, thankfully, that didn't happen to me when they took me out. But I did spend a couple of months in an incubator mm -hmm. um, because I was just too, I wow. was too, too undeveloped. So, like really... my lungs, my GI tract were 
not ready for, you know, being outside. And so I've had problems in both my lungs and my GI tract my whole life as a result. Really, really early life trauma. My mom was in a car accident when she was pregnant with me, but mm. she also took, um, while she was pregnant, progesterone. And there is, I have read a stu some studies that there seems to be some connection between proge progesterone and gender dysphoria. Mm. But she also took, and I don't know if it's the same medication you're referring to, that medication that used to be given to pregnant women that caused a lot of birth defects, like missing limbs and stuff. So my mom did take that when she was pregnant oh, with me man. as well. I have no idea. My mother, you know, she was quite the free spirit. But she was taking, oh my gosh. But I mean, yeah, that's, it's interesting to think about, you know, for me, you know, that particular birthing trauma and yours as well with the car accident, like is, you know, is it possible, and I don't know this, I don't know if you learned about this in nursing school, is it possible that when the woman, right, when the mom is under a lot of stress, I mean, that cortisol that's being released, right, does that have a masculinizing effect? Does that, like, who knows what's, who knows? I don't understand how that all works, but I'm, you know, and that's to say not all of us have been born of trauma, yeah. right? So yeah. it's not going to account for all of us, but it, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about how that could be yeah. connected somehow. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be a single factor factor that would account for all of us, but the high testosterone I've heard enough, and there's been enough yeah. studies about it that that one is pretty, I think we can kind of count on, on that correlation pretty strongly. Yeah. But it sounds like it didn't really turn into gender dysphoria until later in life when you started encountering more pushback from your environment. Yeah. And it's like, and that's why I have a hard time, like really embracing this concept of gender dysphoria, because I was, I felt perfectly fine. I, as I've said, I've said before, I don't know if I said it on, on this podcast, but on others, I've said, you know, because I went through the encephalitis and the paralysis, and I'm just happy to have a body that works well enough that I'm on up on my own two feet and I can get around and, you know, I have, I have disabling, you know, issues, but not so, you know, limiting. And the idea of being born in the wrong body just never suited me. I just didn't like that. And this idea of if I don't transition, I'll kill myself. I was like, I'm not killing myself. <laughs> you know, Why would I want to do that? You know, life is awesome. And so, and I still believe that, you know, I love living. And so it's, it's, it, it more has to do with, again, I think this is why I've said something about like escaping homophobia and sexism, because it, it, that's what comes front of mind for me when I think about what was happening at the time. It's like, well, what was happening from the age of maybe 16 to 26? Um, well, maybe even 36, if I really, if I really include everything. So 16 to 36, I'm dealing with, in the first, say, 16 to 26, I'm dealing with being confronted regularly in public by, you know, jerks who think it's their place to come up to me and 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 tell me stuff about how they don't like how I look or, you know, um, and telling me what I what, what kind of activity I need to engage in with them in order to fix myself. You know, I'm not going to get to let, let's make it kid a little more teenage friendly, at least. Right. And so it's it's uh, and I'd be like, you know, F you and start slugging away, you know, like I was very combative at that point. 
Um, but, and, you know, the typical kind of androgynous lesbian kind of experience where I was served all the time. And it really pissed me off, actually. <laughs> it annoyed me. I didn't like being served. I'd be like, are you stupid? Like, I'd be like, I'd point at my breast, like, hello, you know, or I'd go into the bathroom and, and people be like, you're in the wrong bathroom, sir. And I'd be quite vulgar sometimes, you know, and like point down and say, I have a, mm -hmm, you know, and I learned that from Leah Deliria. Have you ever seen that stand-up comedian, Leah no. Deliria? No. I saw her, I saw her live. She was a friend of a friend and I saw her live and she used to talk about, you know, being an androgynous lesbian and going into the women's bathrooms and how that was always, you know, just a hoot, you know, <laughs> because, you know, you never knew what you were going to engage in, but she used to say things like she would say, you know, like I've got to, and she would like point down, you know, and be vulgar. And I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to start doing, you know? Um, or lifting up her shirt and flashing. And I'm like, oh yeah, me, that's what I'm doing. You know, so I, I was, again, oppositionally defiant. Um, so I didn't have any issue with that at all. I was, I was, you know, I was in the lesbian scene and I was, I was doing pretty good with the ladies. So, you know, I'll admit it. Life was good. Um, but that, that other thing that was happening around me, it just started to wear on me. And, and then I went to a film festival. Let's see, 19, 1996, I think it was. I went to a film festival, the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, as they were called back then, in San Diego, California. And I saw a movie called You Don't Know Dick. I've heard of that. And I haven't seen it. Yeah. You Don't Know Dick is, I believe, the first feature-length film about FTMs. And I was with my girlfriend and I remember sitting there and watching the whole thing and thinking, what? <laughs> when? I'm confused. What did they, what's happening? What did they do? I couldn't figure it out. And my girlfriend had to explain to me, like, those were women who took medicine and now they're men. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was, it was lost on me, but it like, it like planted a seed in my brain that just, hadn't germinated yet, you know, it needed some watering. And so it was a year later that somebody called me up and said, you've got to come over to my house right now. I just bought a book. You have to see it. I get there and it's Body Alchemy by Lauren Cameron. And now at this time I'm in college, I'm a freshman in college. I'm a what, 30 something year old freshman in college, right? Non-traditional student. And I was like, oh, I recognize some of those guys. They were in that movie I saw last year. And then, and it had before and after kind of pictures of them. And I'm like, oh, well, huh, that's interesting. And then I just filed it away, filed it away. It didn't even dawn on me that I would do that. But it made me much more aware of it was a possibility. Mm -hmm. And then while I was in college, I was meeting all of these um, trans men and trans women out in the community who were coming to campus, I was working in the GLBT student services office. So we brought speakers and performers to campus and they would, you know, and so I was around them all the time. And I just kept hearing the stories and hearing the stories and thinking, yeah, that doesn't match me. That doesn't match me. That doesn't match me. Cause again, I'm not born in the wrong body. I wasn't going to commit suicide. So there was, and I was not dissatisfied at all. I wasn't dissatisfied with my body. I wasn't dissatisfied with being a lesbian. I wasn't dissatisfied with being a female. I'm still not. I'm still female, right? I wasn't dissatisfied with being a woman, though. But I was dissatisfied with how I was being treated 
as a masculine woman. That I did not like. And it just wore on me and wore on me and wore on me. And eventually I just said, you know what? If my masculinity is just so much of an affront to society, what if I just took it up a couple of notches? What if I did what those other women did, right? Sorry for the, and they, that might be hard, you know, disrespectful to some of them who don't, but that was the way I was thinking, right? I could do what they did and then I could just go live my life in peace. And when I went to the, go talk to the doctor, she was a lesbian in San Francisco. She had worked at uh, the Tom Waddell clinic, which is the HIV. They have an HIV positive clinic. They started a trans component within the HIV component. And uh, when I went to go see her at her other office at University of California, San Francisco, I told her exactly why I wanted to start testosterone. Just what I'm telling you right now. I get, I didn't give her the whole story, of course, but I, I, you know, I gave her the basics, you know? And I said, is that, is that, is that going to work? Will you give me a prescription? And she, and my wife, Margaret was with, with me at the time. And she's like, you're not the first person who's told me this. I'm like, I'm not. And she's like, no, she's at that time. She said, I've been working with trans patients for 12 years. I've heard many, many different stories. I said, I've never heard anybody talk this way. They all talk this way that they think everybody expects them. And she's like, I know. She's like, I don't believe most of that anyway. <laughs> You know, yep. and so I walked out with a prescription. Well, at least you but were, been, you were honest about it. Like you, you kind of knew yes. what your motives were. You were honest about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I did experience, you know, what I would call like a body dysmorphia aspect of it that developed in as a little kid, it, it, that wasn't so much the case, but I think where, where our, our stories aren't similar is I really believed that in that not and I don't like the terms born in the wrong body that I don't really relate to that terminology, but I did feel like I am a boy in some way that, that, that some mistake has been made and some, something happened. And I didn't know as a kid that I had a DSD and I don't know if that's related. I mean, that's what I chalked it up to once I discovered that, but um, I just felt like something's wrong. I, you know, I was, I was supposed to be a boy and I know technically I'm not. And this feels weird. And I didn't know how to articulate that as a kid. As I got older, that did turn into a body dysmorphia where the picture I had of myself and how I would look and sort of my bodily integrity didn't match what I could see in a mirror or in a photograph. And it, and it created a, a real, um, it, it did create distress. Like it, like, and, I, and the way I've been describing it to people, which I think I hope is helpful is if you've ever been in a meeting where you hear your own voice echoed back and how that creates this, this kind of bizarre sort of feeling like, like I've had people in meetings say, I can't continue this, this meeting because that hearing my voice echo back just causes some sort of discomfort in my brain that I can't tolerate. So it was a very similar feeling to that whenever I would catch myself in a mirror or in a, you know, a, um, yeah, a window as I was walking by and catch catch my reflection, it would create that similar mm. sort of kind of base. And, and I don't know what word to use. I don't know what that would even be called in that echo, but it, it created that similar like that. That isn't me and, and that disconnect. And so one of the things that one of my motivations for transitioning was to just for that to stop because that became 
so so much of an impairment. So it was anytime I would catch myself, but then I became aware that other people are seeing that image that I see at the mirror. And so any any interaction with another human being, anytime I would catch myself in a mirror, it would cause that. And so when you think people will stop a phone call or a Zoom meeting because they experience that echo, I was experiencing that same sensation of an echo all the time. And that wow, became yeah. so distressing and so so much of an impairment. Yeah. How do you get through your day then trying to avoid every mirror, every window, every human interaction? I would go, I would go out at night and run some of my errands. And and so that ended up being and and the transition did help with that. And it wasn't even that I had a really specific image. Like it's not like I saw Brad Pitt in my brain and I'm upset that I'm not, you know, this Greek God, but it, so it, I mean, the fact that I'm bald and I'm kind of average looking guy, I mean, that, that doesn't matter to me. It wasn't about vanity, yeah. but it was just, I don't look male. And, and that, that caused me so much distress right from, from an early, early age, wow. but the body dysmorphia part more. So when I, when my body started developing breasts and those kinds of things, that's when I started to experience the dysmorphia part of it. It's I had none of that. And I'm wondering if it's partly because the difference between us and that internalizing and externalizing it could be, right? yeah. it could be as simple as that, that, um, but it, and it also could have been for me, at least the fact that, I had been through such trials and tribulations with my physical body. And I was very much an athlete in, um, you know, most, most of my adult life I've, I've been involved in, in sports. And so I, I took great pride in having a strong body, you know, a fit body. And so that's the idea of, of ha having distress about it, even puberty, you know, with puberty, um, Again, I was very little. I was 11, right, when puberty started. So it was before it was before adolescence, really, right? So it was before all of the, I don't know, being exposed to adolescent kinds of social, you know, interactions. Um, when I had a ch eight, chat with Dr. Eight. Zucker about some of the kids that he was seeing in his practice, yeah. you know, back in the day, he said most of those kids were internalizers. So you might be onto something, right? That there's something about being highly gender nonconforming plus a certain temperament, plus maybe a certain environment yeah. that, that creates that, that little sort of glitch that happens to, with some of us where we, uh, and I don't, I still to this day don't really know what to call that. Like what, what that is, you know, I know that some, homosexual transsexuals are really they really love the the language of the sex inversion um and i don't know if i entirely buy that as a as a concept but i but the language i can see where the language of that fits the experience where you just sort of feel this this sort of bizarre sense of i am so much so along the gender nonconformity spectrum that at the very, very extreme end of that, something inverts. I mean, it, it, I could see how intuitively mm -hmm. that feels right yeah. to people, but scientifically, I don't know where that, where that stands. Well, I think some people assume that maybe we have internalized like homophobia or something. Um, I definitely did not have internalized homophobia. You know, I don't know if you thought about this, but I never thought 
when I was starting, you know, testosterone, I never thought about anything, any seriously, at least, um, oh, you know, I am no longer going to be homosexual, right, appearing or perceived at all. I'm going to be heterosexual perceived and appearing, right, because I was still with the same partner. And Margaret and I used to have conversations, you know, early on that, you know, it changed both of our realities quite a lot in the sense that, like, how people interacted with us and how how welcome we felt when we went into the same spaces we had been going into, you know, for me for many, many years, because I'm 10 years older than Margaret, right? I, I, I was basically grew up in lesbian community since the time I was 14, I was in that community. And all of a sudden it was like a place that was off limits to me. And I'm, I wasn't one of those kinds of trans guys who sort of insisted that I stay I know that some people have done gone that route. They've mm -hmm. this is still my space, and I was sort of like, as soon as I could get out, I got out. You know, I, I um, I don't know that I ever found the lesbian community to be all that um, much of a safe landing space. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't terrible, but there there were things about it that I just never really got into. Um, Certainly yeah. isn't the utopian, you know, Isle of Lesbos kind of mm -hmm. image that some want to pretend it is. Yeah. And, and there's lots of infighting, you know, the. Yeah, I never went to the Michigan Women's Music Festival. I didn't want to, you know, I, I, I probably would have fit in because I was one of those hairy legged, hairy armpit, Birkenstock wearing, you know, um, dykes. But and I was very much a separatist, actually, which people always find really interesting. But there was something about. Um, I don't know how, I don't know what you would call it, but so for example, you know, I, I've come to, to my medical transition in a very different trajectory than most people, although not all, because I'm sure I'm not the only one that has a similar story as I've been told by my doctor, but then people say to me, well, then wh why did you get a top surgery and why did you get a full, like, not just a hysterectomy, but a whole kit and caboodle, zip it up, you know, and then phalloplasty, like, why, why did you do that? And the, <laughs> my only, my only response has been, because I can't, I don't really think about it much, which is, well, I mean, if I'm going to be a man, I'm going to be a man. I mean, like, if I'm going to live in the world as a man, then I want to be able to function as much as possible in the world as a man, I'll put the caveat on there for people as I see it, um, yeah. right? For me, yeah. for, for me, I don't want people to misinterpret. And so, you know, I kept listening to trans men talking about all the regrets that they had about having to deal with the BS with the TSA at the airport. And if they're out with their buddies on a long bicycle ride and everybody else can just, you know, go to the bathroom right there without having to, you know, need toilet paper or, you know, to squat anywhere. And, um, you know, just the ease of it, the ease of that sort of being able to access different men's space and, and not have to feel out of sorts. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to, I just spent all this time feeling out of sorts to a certain degree because of 
that constant barrage of people telling me that I was doing it wrong and, and thinking like, I'm not doing it wrong. You just want me to do it differently. And I didn't want to be under that kind of scrutiny anymore. I'm like, I'm done with the scrutiny. No more microscopes. I'm going to be living my life how I want to live it. I just want to blend in, mix in, move on. And that to me felt like the way to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'll get tops or because I, I don't, I, I had top surgery in 2006. I don't think I've been outside. Not once have I been outside other than maybe a balcony at a hotel or something with my shirt off. Like I didn't get top surgery to just go shirtless everywhere. Like that's not why I did it. I did it because I wanted to wear men's cut shirts and they don't accommodate yeah yeah what i had going on and so and i wanted to be able to just seamlessly interact in more private men's space locker rooms bathrooms you know security checks i wanted to be able to just you know s send all the correct signals so to speak to just not have to be hassled mm -hmm. because it's like talk about drastic i mean you and i have have made have gone quote all the way we've had the surgery <laughs> as people like yeah, to say yeah. and so that that to people is like why would you do that um because the messaging well the messaging used to be that was a barbaric surgery and now the messaging is you don't need it to be a man it's like well s some men do right some trans men do and some trans men like me are like but I can and I will mm -hmm. because insurance paid for it. I wouldn't have spent $250,000 of my own money. But I'm, I'm, and I've had complications with my bottom surgery, but, um, or phalloplasty. I know some people hate those euphemisms. <laughs> I had a bilateral double mastectomy with chest reconstruction <laughs> <laughs> and a phalloplasty. Um, it's like not a lot of not a lot of guys get that surgery yeah yeah and it's it's a decision that we all have to come to on our own and i think we all come to it for very different reasons and i think we all transition for very different reasons and that's and what I i'm don't discovering like that things yeah. get narrowed down into these yeah these like here are the four options which one is for you and it's like no uh, that, just the defiance in me. I'm going to be like, none of them, <laughs> you know? And that's what I've enjoyed about doing these podcasts um, with, with people that are just willing to tell their, their story and some of that, that detail of, and it, because I think I, one of the first things that I came across when I was contemplating transitioning was body alchemy, um, which you already mentioned, and J. Mason Green's book, Because Becoming a Visible Man. And his book really resonated with me because he seemed to be just a similar, a similar kind of lesbian that I had been. Like there's so much about his personality and the life that he had lived that I related to. And um, you know, even the drumming circles and stuff. So so much of him just seemed like the kind of guy I'd want to have a beer with. Um but he's, he started that book with some really beautiful metaphors, but he started that book talking a lot about um, sex differentiation and intersex conditions. And at that time, I had already known about my intersex conditions. So I thought, okay, so he's talking about this. This resonates with me. And I thought, well, this must be 
like what I experienced as far as the body dysmorphia and feeling like I just am a boy. And, um, and then he started talking about, you know, intersex uh, pathways. And I thought, okay, so this is what it means to be trans. And when I started, and then I certainly knew, you know, butch lesbians in the day who seemed to have a similar sort of body dysmorphia, um, you know, the stone butches who didn't want to be touched because they felt so much distress with their physical body. And I even met some trans guys who said they had like phantom phallus sensations where they really mm -hmm. felt like they could feel something flopping around between their legs. And so all of that kind of tracked. I didn't have that, but all of that seemed to kind of track with my experience. And I thought, well, that, that's what trans is. And that's what, what we all experience. That's so I thought. So when I'm assessed, then I, you know, years later, you know, re the last three, th three years ago, when I started assessing people coming in for hormones and I could see they're all different. They're all coming in for a different reason. And I could just sense that because I'm, you know, assessment is one of my strengths and I, I could sense, okay, there's different things going on for all these people. And I felt confused by that. And I felt, okay, I want to step back because I need to wrap my head around what, what this is. And I certainly heard, you know, trans men in the, in the, over the years say, you know, that they, they kind of fibbed their way through the assessment process when they went through it, and, but they would never elaborated. Well, what was it about like that for you then, you know, they kind of like hint through that out that they fibbed, but, but there was, I couldn't access what their story was and what their motivation was. And so I just felt as, as a clinician, that's like, I need to, I, I'm not now feeling comfortable with this. I want to step back. I really want to understand trans people's experiences, their real experiences, not a narrative that they picked up somewhere and that they rehearsed and took into the assessment room with them. You know, so I'm, I'm thinking how many of these these trans men who I thought had the same experience of mine, maybe a lot of them never did. And that was just sort of a narrative that they picked up and and told because they think, well, that's what I'm supposed to say as a trans person. Well, there there is coaching that happens around those lines. You know, when I when I worked for the for the military on one of the transgender care teams uh, between from July 2016 to January of 2019, I assessed as a licensed clinical social worker, right? I assessed somewhere around 300 of these service members who were seeking a medical transition while on active duty. And um, I'm, I'm similar. I really love assessment. Um, I, I get a big kick out of doing assessments. I think it's one of the best parts about being a social worker. I do think that everybody should have to go through a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment in order to access any kind of medical treatment. I don't care what it is. Um, there's so many things that people don't know that, that um, if we can help them fill the gaps in, like who's going to drive you to your appointments? Yeah, you know, who can you call who, you know, do you have stairs leading up to your apartment, right? All the things that people don't even think about, and then they get home and they're like, Oh, shit, I got to climb up stairs, you know, and so the Yeah, I mean, it's not as if I heard one story. I didn't even hear maybe well, I, I almost did hear 300 different stories because there was enough about each one of them. 
And it's like, so if, and if people out there think that, you know, we all have the same narrative, we all, we've all, we all have the same identity, we all want the same things. I, I like to tell people as often as possible, there's no consensus in our community. Mm -hmm. We haven't been all mustered up together. We haven't taken a vote, right? So anything you see on Twitter or TikTok, um, those people are speaking for themselves and their select group of friends and influencers. But if you really want to know what the trans community thinks, well, then you've got to talk to a lot of us across all spectrums, socioeconomic, geographic, racial, ethnic, religious, political, age, all of it. You've got to look at all these and then you can start to get somewhat of a sense of just how uh, complex it really is. Right. It really, really is. It's not so simple. I think people are trying to make things much too simple. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's unfortunate that people are still to this day getting coached on what to say. Um, also, I think maybe and told, to, and told not to trust the clinicians, that the clinicians are somehow oh, out God's to get sake. them. Gatekeepers, probably. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I wondering. Remember I'm wondering what this was like for you. I, I, um, I think when I first started to think, oh, I'm, I'm trans. I called myself trans is starting in 1998. And that was because I, 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 I met Les, Leslie Feinberg and Leslie Feinberg said to me and the few people that were at this event, um, she was reading from Stonebridge Blues at the women's bookstore in Denver, where I went to college. So it was a small little audience in there. And she said, being transgender means you transgress gender norms. And I thought, oh, right. Cause she had, she had, I think she was one of the people that popularized the usage of the term transgender. And cause I had heard transvestite and I had heard transsexual, but this transgender thing was a bit new. And um, I thought, well, I transgress gender norms. So I started calling myself trans but I didn't start hormones till 2005. And so I had a five year period of time where I watched documentaries, I read books. Um, I read a bunch of books on intersexuality. I wanted to know, how do, we, how do we know about this thing we call sex and this thing we call gender? And I wanted, to, I wanted to take a deep dive into that. So I read like six books on the topic and and I, and I met people and I went to conferences and I went to meetings and it was five years later. So, you know, people who are like three months after they've come to the decision that they're trans and they want to start a hormones right away. You know, it's like I, I that I don't understand um, how something is so urgent mm -hmm. so quickly because I really did sort of slow things down. Partly it was also because I thought testosterone would make me violent, which is something I had learned from you know, I had uh, heard that the part know. of the lesbian community I was grew up in, yeah. you know, so to speak, um, which, which might be, you know, when, when, when that's coming from the lesbian community, it, it, cause that, that had, I had heard that, that too. And that, that had been a concern for me, but I think some of it might've been just lesbian opinions of men in general that might course. make yeah. a person, you know, feel that way. But I remember back well, the patriarchy, right? Sure. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. When I went through the system, there was a lot more assessment and I did, and I actually found that assessment process helpful. Mm -hmm. um, 
of course, I, you know, of course, that makes a person nervous when you feel like someone else has the power to say yay or nay. But I did feel well supported. I felt respected, and I felt, and I thought I actually found the assessments interesting. And I always have like personality quizzes. I love quizzes and assessments, and because um, I like learning about myself. And I found the assessment process helpful because it did ask things that that it touched on things that I hadn't considered. But I remember hearing in the community how upset they were, how they were offended that that they were being asked these questions. And I, I wonder if, just, so just an example, one of the, uh, the surgeon, so every step of the way, I was, was a separate assessment process. So I was assessed for three months before I started hormones and then assessed again by a psychologist who did all kinds of screeners for you know personality disorders and all kinds of things before I had any surgeries. And then the surgeon himself, before I had the double mastectomy, also had screeners and assessments. So lots of assessment at every stage. And I remember the surgeon's assessment asking about things like sexual fantasies. And there were people in the community you know, kind of defaming the surgeon saying, well, the surgeon must, must be just a pervert if he's asking about our sexual fantasies. And But I think it actually makes sense because imagine if in your sexuality and your sexual fantasies that you're imagining different genitalia than you're about to get created for you, how that could really, I think, lead to some some complicated feelings and, and potentially some regret later on. Um, so I think the questions make sense. And, and I didn't feel like the surgeon was prying. And I, I feel like it, rather than um, maybe having conversations with care providers of what is the purpose of assessment? Like what what are you hoping to screen yeah. out or, well, or make me think about, or, you know, if we could develop um, more community understanding of what that assessment process is about and develop trust yeah. with care providers, that might've been a better way to go than say, we're just going to do away with all assessment because it makes me feel uncomfortable. I think you're correct that most people don't really, I don't think they understand what we mean by assessment, right? Like when I say biopsychosocial assessment, um, I've said that even to physicians who have said, what's that? So I, I know that this isn't a commonly referred to or, or known type of assessment. I think most people think when they hear the word assessment and they think, well, who does the assessment? Well, a social worker um, or, uh, right, so a case manager, social work case manager, nurse case manager, right, who are working in the mental health field. So they immediately turn it into they think they're being assessed for mental illness. And it's like, no, the biopsychosocial assessment is assessing, you know, how did you do in school? How are your family dynamics? Who's all in your family? Where are you living? What's your source of income? How do you get around? What's your transportation, right? It's, it's uh, who do you call on when you need something? Who's going to be there for you for the aftercare? It's, it's, it's finding like, where are the gaps? And then what resources can we give them and what referrals can we make for them to other, you know, other agencies, other individuals, resources out in the community to connect in because we don't want people isolating. So we want to refer them to maybe, you know, the local peer, peer support group, right? And if people are struggling with housing, we don't want people to start you know, a surgical procedure who has unstable housing, 
right? Like we don't want yeah. that. It's so we, so that's, that's the process. And I don't think that a lot of people know that. I think they think we're doing a diagnosis for comorbidities. What I say to people is I never did those things. What I did was I made an assessment and if it looked like based on the assessment that you could, this person could benefit from being referred to a psychotherapist for uh, some other types of diagnosis assessments, then I would make that referral or I would recommend it to them and ask them if they wanted to be referred. That it's So I think it depends on who you're going to for the assessment. If you go to a psychologist for an assessment, I don't know that they're doing the biopsychosocial assessment. I don't know what they're doing. Are they doing the mini mental exam? Are they doing the, are they just doing a gender dysphoria criteria diagnosis and then moving on? Like, I really, I don't even know what they mean by that when they just say assessment, which mm -hmm. is, I think in the standards of care version eight, at least in the adolescent chapter, I believe it says comprehensive evaluation or comprehensive assessment. They should have been more specific. I think it should say biopsychosocial so that people understand that's just something the nurse or the social worker does, right? It, it's at a in a clinical setting. It's uh, It doesn't have to be, yes, it's the mental health sphere, but you're not, you're not being, you're, it's not psychotherapy. Right. Right. It's, that's why I think they should have case managers, social worker, nurse, case managers in all of those teams on all in all those transgender clinics they should have somebody and they don't all do the ones that are private don't have them because it's an added expense right and even yeah. some of the ones that are somewhat public the social work departments and or the nursing departments won't dedicate a case manager to the transgender team right they've got everybody they've got all the doctors and they've got the individual people who answer the phone in those doctors, you know, offices, but they don't have the one person or two people that are tracking everybody from start to finish. That's what's really missing. That's that's the job I did with the military. It's what I think is needed and is missing from a lot of this mm -hmm. is that person who's tracking it, whether they're a nurse or a social worker. Because, you know, I think people even talking about regret, I think. Mm. there's there's nuance in regret like there's uh -huh. it's not always like, i mean some people it's just like i made a the whole thing is a mistake there's that but there's 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 pieces too where it's like i wasn't expecting this part to be this hard i wasn't expecting this part to be this hard or i wasn't expecting this complication so there's like micro regret that that people can experience right because it's a it's a complicated process and there's you know, it's socially complicated. It's psychologically complicated. It, it affects our re intimate relationships, and people don't always think all of those pieces through. Like, who's going to be attracted to me when I'm done this? If I'm only attracted to lesbians, lesbians aren't going to be attracted to me anymore. So, it a person needs to think through all of those little pieces. I don't. I don't have any regrets. What I have said is. So I went to see this one doctor. I got my prescription for testosterone. And as a veteran, I use the Department of Veterans Affairs for healthcare. I took my prescription because at the time the VA would not initiate transition. But if I took a prescription from a community doctor to the VA, my VA doctor would put it into the system and I would be 
I would get a, my prescription through the VA. So that's what I did. So I, I started on hormones through the Department of Veterans Affairs in 2005. And I did not do any counseling at all. None. I don't have any regrets about it, but I do believe I would have benefited from having somebody to talk to that was purely objective, like a sounding board, to be able to talk through some of the, I don't know, maybe maybe some of the more discombobulating and destabilizing parts of transition in the the way people start to treat us as soon as we um, appear very manly to them. Um, the world treats men and women very differently, and you don't really know exactly how that works mm. until you've lived on both sides. Yeah. Um, so most people don't really have this experience. And I'd say not even all trans men have the experience because a lot of trans men are, I mean, they're easily clocked, right? Because maybe they're not on hormones or they're on a really low dose or their body's just not responding to it. That happens, right? Yeah. And so there's always the, something about them that you're kind small, of like- Small build, small stature, so something. not as threatening to other people and- Yeah. 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 So, so they're going to get treated differently, but for other reasons, Yeah. right? But when you all of a sudden are walking through the world, looking how we look, it's a very different experience. Um, and that would have been the only, the only support I had besides, of course, my wife and my family was I continuously went for about four, almost five years, actually, I went to and actually led several FTM, uh, discussion groups in San Francisco and in San Diego. And, um, I took over for the FTM international support group when I was in San Francisco. So I led that co as a co-facilitator for a couple of years. And there was a lot of benefit from that, but there was also a lot of um, uh, what I call stunting, stunting of my own moving forward because I was constantly the point person for everybody else, mm. right? So they were always coming to me for information, for resources, for, for guidance. And I was outwardly focused for a number of years. And then I would thought, I need to stop this. I, I need to focus on myself a little bit more. And that's when I thought, oh, it probably would have been good if I'd been seeing a therapist this whole time. Not because I have, because I don't have any comorbidities, right? I don't have anxiety. I don't have depression. I don't have any, you know, chronic, more serious mental illnesses. I've never had, you know, I've never been diagnosed with like, bulimia or you know what I mean like none mm -hmm. of those things and so there's nothing else um but it's hard when you don't have any diagnosis other than I guess gender dysphoria I'd have to get diagnosed with gender dysphoria in order for the insurance to pay for it right, right. you can't just keep going to see a therapist unless you're out of pocket and even at the VA it's limited you know eight nine twelve weeks and then you're cut off yeah. Um, yeah. I agree with you that that is something that I wish had been built into the system is just that, that support to re-socialize. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and people, you know, push back on me about that saying, oh, well, if you always knew it, knew that you're a man, why would you need to re-socialize? But you're absolutely right that the, the whole world, you know, starts yeah. responding to you differently when you look different and there's yeah. no way you can prepare for that. And people don't understand, I think what we're talking about unless they've been through it, you know? And it can like, happen overnight, right? It happens so quickly if if we are one of the, 
I consider myself considered myself lucky that I was one of the ones that I my body responded to the testosterone very quickly. But that didn't give me a lot of time to relearn how to socialize in the world. And I definitely got myself into some situations where I didn't feel safe because I was doing something that wasn't quite male typical and and men can become quite aggressive. Um, oh, no, I had when, an when other men. on a bus. Yeah, wow, I got really? in an altercation with the person on a bus who pulled a knife on me. Yeah, no, it's in San Francisco. It's, um, you know, for me, I started test. Uh, my body didn't respond quickly to the testosterone. But again, I was very masculine appearing and I got served all the time. So I changed my hairstyle, right? I went to the barber shop and got a man's haircut. And then I started wearing a binder. One of those, like the real ones, the compression t-shirts that mm -hmm. used to, we used to get from, you know, there's so many different ones now, but this is like the old school, like surgical ones, you know? Yep. And I noticed just like that immediately, people started treating me differently. I'm five, nine, right? So I'm tall mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm big. Um, so people don't mess with me. And um, the, the, the treatment, as soon as I did the compression, that significantly changed how people treated me. And it just, it went from there. And there's no set, there's no similarity between being a masculine woman and being a masculine man and how people treat you. No. There's just not it. I, the thing is, you know, I thought, oh, I'll be safer, right? I thought I was unsafe. But what I didn't realize is that men are more often the victims of violence than women are. Yeah, like muggings and carjackings and, you know, just random bar fights or punched out on the, the you know, the per homeless person attacking you. M men are more likely. And I I never paid any attention to that because, again, like, I guess I didn't care. That's one of the mea culpas. You know, it's sort mm -hmm. of a karmic rea reality for me is I didn't really think about it and didn't care enough until I started to transition and then I started to work in mental health in the VA with almost exclusively men and learning about it sort of, you know, like I was an adolescent in my 40s, learning yeah. about about the world of men. Um, there's there's a tension in the trans community as well that I'm, I'm sure you've experienced that there are those who who want to convincingly integrate into the world as the opposite sex. So, I mean, you're describing that you just kind of committed to, I'm going to live as a man in the world and, and do that successfully. And, and I was the same way. I just wanted to, to success, successfully blend into the world and function well yeah. as, as a man. And, but there are, so that's sort of one part of the trans community, but there's another part of the trans community where transition is very much about subversion and disruption and, um, or, or, you know, occupying a middle space that's, that's mm. sort of blunt, you know, and so they would refer to us as, um, um, you know, uh, cis heteronormativity or mm. uh, passing privilege. So there's been, there has for a long time been that tension so whenever I suggest, I wish there had been more support to do that resocialization and and just talk about the ways in which that's challenging and difficult. But then inevitably you get that push from inside the trans community saying, no, that's heteronormative. You're, you're not supposed to desire to mm. learn how to socialize like a man and fit into the world as, as a man. And so it's, 
I don't know. It's hard to advocate for certain things to be built into our services when half of the trans community is saying, well, no, you shouldn't be wanting that in the first place. Well, I I don't even think it's half. I think it's a much smaller percentage than that. Um, I can't really have conversations about this too often. Um, Well, I I guess I could, but I don't want to. (laughs) Um, But you know, I, I just don't share a worldview with those people. I'm, I'm not a postmodernist, right? I, I don't share the worldview that we need to um, deconstruct or tear down or destroy or eradicate things. Um, I believe that there are non-conflictually based ways to resolve issues. And that's my goal is to be more of a bridge builder than a bridge destroyer. And so I'd like to just, you know, there's a particular kind of consulting that I learned when I was in graduate school called appreciative inquiry, right? And an appreciative Mm -hmm. inquiry, you go into a place of business and you look for all the things that are working, all the things that are positive about everything about the business. And then you encourage them to do more and more and more of that. And not to focus on what's not right and what's going wrong and what could be better. Those things, they get worked out if you, if you focus on, if you get everybody to focus in on and appreciate what's really working, what's going well, and what we can build on, it brings, it brings some of those other issues along with it and those people along with it. Um, but, you know, I encountered this also in, in lesbian community. There were right, gay and lesbian community back in the day, there were always the gay men and the lesbians who um, thought being married was just not a thing we should be fighting for. And wanting to serve in the military was not something they thought we should be fighting for. They were very, um, again, they have much more of maybe Marxist or postmodernist kind of views. And I just didn't have those types of views. I don't, and I, and I will not, you know, subscribe to them. And so I say, you know what, let those people do what they're doing. I I think eventually they'll realize they're creating so much havoc for themselves that they'll stop doing it. Either it'll happen naturally as they age out of being angry all the time, or they'll settle in, they'll settle into a relationship, they'll settle into a job, they'll settle into their own self, And they'll move on from that because it's no way, there's no way to um, a sense of well-being if if a person is spending all of their energy pushing against the, quote, system, fighting, you know, yelling, name-calling, trying to smear people. Um, These are just some of the things I've experienced directly. I I know you have too. It's... uh, It's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's like all that energy. Um, I, I just wish they loved themselves more. I really, because if they were more focused on their own well-being, they would not be so fixated on all these things that are not going right. But I got to tell you, I mean, to a certain degree, I was fixated, right? I was displeased with how people were treating me. But I always wanted to get married eventually, right? Like, so there was a part of me that's very traditional. I'm very much a modernist, very much a traditionalist, you know, very much a, 
a moderate in, in most things, you know, including politics. And so I'm able to kind of look in all directions and go, oh, I like that. And I like that. And I don't like that. And kind of make my own world. Um, I'm, I'm not a follower. I've never been a follower of a belief system, a joiner of a particular, you know, whatever it is, a faith or a I, I, I travel around. I have a degree in theology. I travel around spirituality groups. I love that. But I'm, I'm not a joiner or a belonger. And I'm the same way. It's like I'm a trans man, but I'm not going to join in to any of the shenanigans that um, that are happening. I'm not on social media. So I don't partake in either direction, you know, <laughs> uh, and those really, of you who are on it, you're exposed to yeah, all of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, yeah, I really appreciate the work that you're doing with FAIR um, and the philosophy, you know, that, that they're using to, um, to promote civil liberties and, and justice for people that isn't based in post postmodernism. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love the work that I'm doing, you know, Part most of what I'm doing is um, corporate trainings, and I'm I'm particularly working with this massive uh, multinational corporation that has I mean just tens of thousands of employees just in the United States. It's massive, and um, it's just really exciting. It's exciting the work that that I'm doing with them. But I also you know within Fair we have some ability to bring ourselves you know like what am i passionate about and so in january of 2021 i founded fair wellness within the fair community and so um over the course of that year i i developed and then i facilitated eight different wellness webinars for our members we have somewhere around 80,000 members in our chapters all across the united states and canada and so any of them could come in for free because these things often cost money um, and so I was really happy to be able to do that and also for our staff if they wanted to come in. So it's like it's basically what I really love to do and I get to do it in this environment without having to compromise my own morals and my own core beliefs. Right. But I still get to do the work that I've been doing for years. But I'm just doing it, you know. You've, you've created a different way, you know. You've, yeah, you've created some good videos um, with them as well. I'll link mm -hmm. some of those in our in our liner yeah. liner notes. Uh, I want to be respectful of your of your time and and what we had booked here. But thanks, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to sit down. And I wish you were closer. We could just go out and have a beer or something sometime. But this is this is the next best thing. I would I would love to be able to do that, and I, maybe. Maybe in 2023, there might be an opportunity for us to be in the same place at the same time. I really hope so, because I, I would love to do that as well. So I hope so, too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, and thank you. Thank you for all the work you're doing with the uh, Gender Dysphoria Alliance and uh, all these podcasts and just reaching out. And you're doing really good work. And again, you've been through some trials and tribulations of, of late. And so just want to send you just big, big hug and... Um, you know, sending you, keeping you in my prayers for sure. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.